right. I'm excited once again to be able to open the book of Ephesians as we um, look at this. This is sort of the quintessential Pauline letter. If we're going to understand Paul's theology, uh, Ephesians is a great place to go. And uh, many of you who have been here for a while know that I, I could live in the book of Romans. I love Romans. Uh, but Ephesians takes it a step further. As, as Paul in Romans deals with individual life uh, very specifically uh, and, and has an eye to the church, here in Ephesians, the emphasis is somewhat shifted. So he's looking at us together collectively uh, with an eye then also to our individual responsibility. So uh, that said, I want to invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We will look, as we read earlier, at verses 15 to 23. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, or at least that's how it seems, I served on our local school board. And at that time, we were dealing uh, with some unhealthy perspectives on what it meant to be a board member. Some folks uh, who held the position had become rather confused about the nature and character of the board. Now, hopefully this makes sense. I think, I think it should be clear to you. Uh, as it became clear to us, on a, on a board like that, there is no power, no authority, no privilege in the individual, in any individual member. All the power, authority, and privilege rests in the board as a whole. So an individual school board member by themselves means nothing just another citizen. But together, as a unit, they set board policy, they hire and fire the superintendent, they do the work of governing the school, but only as a body, as a board. That's one reason that I love team sports like baseball and especially football. They emphasize that very point. Every individual is valuable and needed. We can attest to that from our church softball team. Some of the times when we were shorthanded and played a 10-person game with, with eight players, we'd maybe get away with nine with our super speedy outfield that we had. But when we had to, and Heidi carried the weight, right, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, when we had to play with eight people, if you don't have anybody in, in left field or you give up right field, it's real easy to get exploited. You need everybody. No individual, though, is sufficient to the task at hand. Nobody is. You can't go out there, it doesn't matter how good you are. You could be Mike Presbolinski. You cannot go out there and win a softball game by yourself. There's, that's just not how it works. Personal victories mean little if the team doesn't win. <laughs> As a Cub fan, I can attest to that for most of my lifetime. When we had popular players who might hit a lot of home runs and make great plays, and we kept losing over and over again. That's not how team sports work. What matters is not who gets the glory, or that any individual gets the glory, but that all the individuals work together as a body. It's only in the context of the team that it really matters. It's the team setting 
the relationships, the interdependence, the selflessness that make it glorious. If it was just the competition, you could run track, you could wrestle. Those are individual sports. But team sports teach us a whole other lesson. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, Paul draws our attention to the same dynamic in the Christian life. <clears throat> that dynamic is clear in our core reality. It's only in the context of the church that we can fully know and experience God. It's only in the context of the church that we can fully know and experience God. Now, as Paul writes to the Ephesian church here, he couches this whole passage in the context of the church. He begins there. He ends there. Everything he says in the middle, then, is developed with that background. Let's take a look at it real quick. In in the very beginning of this passage, in verse 15, he starts out by saying, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. If you have a, the newer edition of the NIV or you have a New Living Translation, it may say, for the holy ones or for God's people. This phrase, for all the saints, means those things, but... I like the way it sounds better, so I stuck with the older one. The, the reality of being focused on in the saints here is that Paul is drawing their attention to the fact that I didn't just hear that you believed in Jesus, but that your faith in Christ led to your love for Christ's body, for the church, for the people. He puts it here as if the two are inseparable, inextricable from one another. We might say two sides of the same coin, but it really isn't even that. They're part and parcel together. If you love Christ, you love the church. You love Christ's body. If you don't love the body, then you don't love the head. That's how it works. So as Paul gives us this in verse 15, and don't be distracted by the the phrasing that he uses here when he says, when I first heard of you, seems a little weird for a guy who lived there and, and churched with them for three years. But the church has grown significantly since then. There are any number of believers who have come and gone. But with the, with the growth that we see happening in the early church, it's not surprising that Paul would say that. There are many believers that he may have never met. Or those who have been there who only later came to faith in Christ. So as he heard where they were, as he got the, the stories of where the church was in their walk, it drew him into praise, into thanking God and praying for them. Jump to the, jump to the end of the passage, verses 22 and 23. And God placed all things under his feet, this is the great overarching purpose of God that we see in Ephesians, that he's bringing all things together under his kingdom rule in Jesus Christ. And so as we see this, he says, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Now, why in the world is he saying he's bringing everything under his feet and also appointing him to be head over the church? If everything is under his feet in other words, Jesus is ruling everything, then Jesus ruling the church really isn't surprising. Where's the surprise here? 
It's a good question as you're reading every passage of the Bible. As you're going through it, look for, where's the surprise? What's the, what's the thing I'm not expecting to see? That goes a great, uh, a great deal toward getting us into the main idea of the author and the transformational intent that they have. When we see the big picture and what thing pops out at us, it helps us to see what, he, what the author wants his readers to do about it. If Christ has all things placed under his feet, and then separately, Paul says, he, God appointed him to be head over everything for the church, there's significance in that. He points out in verse 23, the church is his body, the fullness of him. Let's stop there before we get to the rest of it. The church is the fullness of of Christ. It's his body, his hands and feet in this world. Jesus, Colossians, Paul writes in Colossians that he is the, the full body of Christ, of, of God. He is the invisible God made visible. We, the church, are the visible manifestation of the Lord today. We are the body of of Christ in this world. We are the fullness of Christ. Now, when you look at yourself in the mirror, you may throw yourself off if you're trying to wrestle with that. Because you don't look like the fullness of Christ, do you? None of us individually is the fullness of Christ. I am a part of the body, but I am not the body. We together are the fullness of him. And specifically, he points out, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Jesus fills everything. And in this world, he fills everything through the presence of his church. So when God is setting everything under the feet of Christ, under his kingdom rule, he is doing that through the church. We are the manifestation of God here and now. Are you getting the picture that church might be kind of important? That the holiness of the church might be kind of important? Not to take too big a side road here, but there have been a number of prominent pastors and preachers and most recently, uh, <clears throat> the apologist Ravi Zacharias, who have been drawn into scandal and have failed morally. The reality is we all fail. Some fail bigger on a grand scale. And when we do that, when we as the body fail, individually and or collectively, it leaves... It leaves a mark, doesn't it? It smudges the image of Christ. When the church historically has at times and in pockets never believed the lie that this was the center of the church. But when the church has at times and in pockets embraced racial inequality or misogyny and chauvinism and mistreated individuals in the name of religion, it smudges the image of Christ because that's not what he looks like. 
It's really, really important that we individually and collectively get this right. In the end, God will set it right. I don't know about you, but I'd much rather have, it do, have him do that through me than in spite of me. Pressing on, as we see this passage, we're going to see this unfold, that Paul is developing this idea uh, of his prayer for the saints and what he's praying for them with this backdrop of the church. Remember, our, our core reality that we're seeing in this, the lens through which we want to be able to picture this, is that it's only in the context of the church that we can fully know and experience God. I'm going to say that again. It's only in the context of the church that we can fully know and experience God. You and I as individuals can know God. We can experience God, but we cannot fully know and experience God. We can know Him in part. We can know Him by the reading of the Word. You can be online, as, as many are during this pandemic, and you can receive teaching. You can even participate in singing. But what you can't do is body life. When we're individually separated from one another... What we can't do, here's a crazy thought for you, when we're separated from one another, what we can't do is be together. See how the math works? But we're called to be together. Now, we'll come back toward the end, we'll, we'll look a little bit at how this might play out. But right now I want us to be able to see what Paul is telling us here. First, as we work through this, recognize that it's in the church, the body of Christ, that we know a few things here. We'll go through them individually. I'm going to give you these three points, and then we'll put them up individually on the screen later. We're going to, we're going to see that in the, Christ, in, in the body of Christ, in the church, we know the person of God. We know the hope of God, and we know the power of God. Let's start by looking at knowing the person of God. What is Paul saying here? In verses 15 and 16 and 17, he says, For this reason, what reason? Well, everything that he said before this about what Christ has done in us, what God has done in Christ, having blessed us with every spiritual blessing, having chosen us, having adopted us, having predestined us to be conformed to his likeness, to be holy and blameless before him, making everything that is spiritually true of Jesus Christ, the begotten son, spiritually true of his church, the adopted children. We see that he, he has guaranteed our future with the deposit the down payment of the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now notice, he hasn't just given thanks for them, but he has given thanks for them. We should be thankful for one another in Christ. We should be regularly thanking God for the blessing of our brothers and sisters in the family, even, and maybe even especially, when they get on our nerves. Because that's what brothers and sisters do, right? How many of you grew up with brothers and sisters? Okay, most of you. Did they ever get on your nerves? Well, yeah. But you love them. And you thank God for them. 
The same is true in the church. I'm going to get on your nerves, and you're going to probably get on mine. If not, then we probably aren't as close as we should be. Because those closest to you are the ones who bug you the most. On all the wives said, Amen. This is reality. <clears throat> says, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So in addition to thanking God for them, he remembers to pray for them, to ask God for things, to intercede. Verse 17, he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. For us to know God better, God has to give us His Spirit to give us wisdom, insight, understanding, and revelation to reveal Himself to us. If we don't have God's Spirit opening our eyes, making it clear for us who He is, then we can't, we are not capable of understanding Him. In Romans 8, we're told that the heart controlled by the sinful nature, the mind controlled by the sinful nature, is hostile to God. It's incapable of submitting to Him. We'll see later in Ephesians, that, and, and Galatians as well, and a number of places in Paul's writing, either stated or alluded to, that sin darkens our mind. It dulls our intellect so that we're not able to know what we should be able to know because sin has clouded our vision. Paul is praying for the saints that God would, through his spirit, give them spiritual wisdom and insight and reveal himself to them couple of things. For us to know the person of God, we need to recognize that God created us for community. He created us for community. Just a few places to take a look at. Flip to the beginning of your Bible in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. Familiar passage. We've been here a lot recently. One, starting with verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves along the ground. Remember that. We'll come back to it later. Jump down to verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, in chapter 2, God gives us some detail as to what happens there. We see that God created... And it was good. And God planted a garden in the east, in Eden, in verse 8. And there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life 
and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jump down to verse uh, 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden and to work it and take care of it. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. The Lord God said, it is not good, everything has been good so far, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Then he goes on to tell us how he formed the woman out of the man and, and uh, put them in, in this garden together. Verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they'll become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now notice, in both chapter 1 and chapter 2, that there's a relational nature built into creation. God creates life, and it's good, but it's not good to be without companionship, without relationship. So he creates the woman so that man and woman together can fulfill what he has called them to. And he puts them there and he asks them to, he commands them to be fruitful and multiply. And as he puts them together, now what he has created with the man and the woman is very good. God created us for community. As you go through the book of Genesis, you see the development of the primary unit of society, the family. And in the building of the family, Humanity spreads out, and God calls Abram out of the land where his pagan ancestry is. They've worshipped idols and not the God that created them. He calls Abram out, and he makes a covenant with Abram. And that covenant involves family. And he goes on to say that all nations will be blessed through him. It's interesting that each one of the covenants God makes, starting with Noah, with Abraham, or Abram, with David later, all of the covenants that we see God making focus on or relate to community. When God created Israel, He didn't do it so that He could have a bunch of individuals. He created a nation a family, his people. When the new covenant came, when Jesus instituted the new covenant, related, relating to God through Christ by his body and blood broken for us, he called us to celebrate that remembrance together. Because the relationship that we have with Christ is not merely an individual relationship, but just like the rest of the covenants, it's a body relationship. God relates to his people both individually and collectively. We are created for community. Secondly, notice that we reflect the reality of Christ through relationships. It's in the church, the body of Christ, that we know the person of God because we reflect the reality of Christ through relationships. I won't take you through the passages, but... Throughout the New Testament, we see the one another's 
of church life. We see the doing of life together. And I would draw your attention for your homework to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And then the end of chapter 4 as well, 32 to 37, I think, something like that. It's in your program. But I would draw your attention there to see a picture of what church life looks like. And what happens in Acts 2 after the Holy Spirit comes in and fills the individual believers while gathered together, is He builds out of these individuals a body. One church. And that one church reflects the reality of Christ as they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. As they care for one another's needs, the reality of Christ is reflected through relationships. We can only know God fully when we know God in relationship, in community. If we're called and commanded to love one another, and you may remember that Jesus was very clear about that. In John 13, he says that the, the way that people are going to know you're my disciples is by your love for one another. But love for one another doesn't happen in theory. Love for one another has to reflect the reality of God's love for us, given to us in Christ. This is why marriage, sexuality, and family is such a great picture of God's relationship to His people. Right? Raise your hand if you're married or have been. Okay? Your spouse ever bug you? Come on now, don't get all serious on me. Did your spouse ever get on your nerves? If not, you've never been married. Right? The only people that can honestly answer that, uh, that your spouse has never gotten on your nerves are the single people sitting here. But marriage is bigger than that. Marriage is grace. It's giving that love when the love is undeserved. That's the picture that God gives us to express His love for His people. We can't know God fully without relationships. Well, I'm not married. How am I going to know? In the church. Every one of us is a child of someone. Right? So we all have the relationship of parent and child, whether good or bad, to be able to express the same reflection of God's relationship to His people. More specifically, when we're in Christ, all of that points to this body life together. But if you just associate with the church in name, yeah, I'm a Christian, sure. Me and Jesus got our own thing going, right? If that's all that church life is to you, or if church life is showing up on Sunday morning or logging in online so that you can connect, then you're missing out on everything that makes church relational. We have to be in a committed relationship with actual, real, flesh and blood, annoying, sinful people if we're going to be able to reflect the reality of Christ through our relationships. There is no theoretical love in Christ. It's real love with actions, not just words. 
it's in the church, in the body of Christ, that we know the person of God. It's also in the church that we know the hope of God. We know the hope of God. Now, as Paul, back in Ephesians, as Paul is describing his prayers, he prays that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they might know him better. But notice in verse 18, he says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Your translation may read, if it's a newer translation, may be flooded with light. I think that's actually a really good picture. That the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, flooded with light, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So notice here that for us to know the hope to which God has called us, he has called us to hope, but for us to know that, God needs to open our eyes. As we do this, we are seeing in this hope, or we're seeing this hope in the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. We cannot separate this hope of God's glorious inheritance given out of His great riches. We can't separate that from our life in the saints, in the body. Now, I will confess to you that there is a a bit of an interpretation difficulty in this verse. When it talks about God's glorious inheritance in the saints, it's about an equal split, depending on, on where you're looking, on how that should be interpreted. Is it that God's glorious inheritance is given to us in the saints? Or is it that the saints are God's glorious inheritance? And while it can reasonably be translated either way, and I don't think either way is bad or changes the the great picture that we see here, either we receive from God in the church or in the church, we bless God. We are what God receives, what he is looking forward to. I think the former is the better understanding of it. Looking at the context of everything else here, as we talk about the inheritance, inheritance comes from someone. Who is giving to God? From whom would God inherit something? And yet, we're told in chapter 1, just a few verses before this, that he has guaranteed our inheritance what we receive from him. So it seems more logical, it seems more fitting, given the context of what we're looking at here, that we are hoping for, not hoping for God to receive his blessing from us, but hoping that God in the saints will pour out his riches, his inheritance, which he's already guaranteed to us by his Holy Spirit. Remember that the hope we see biblically is not wishful thinking sort of hope, but a sure and certain knowledge of that which is not currently manifest where we can see it. So God has guaranteed our inheritance. It makes sense for us to look at this and say, wow, the hope that God's called us to is that he has settled our future. He has given us, already placed it there for us, when the time is fully ripe for us to receive this inheritance. 
from his riches. And he does this in the saints. First off, notice in this idea of riches that God has no shortage. God has no shortage. He has no lack. There is nothing that God is without. So when God promises to give us something out of his riches, that is an unspeakable, unlimited resource. God has everything. This is a pretty powerful reality when we think about the fact that he is pouring this out to us from a source that cannot ever end. You will never turn to God looking for his help, looking for hope in him, and find that God has run out. God doesn't run out. He has no shortage. He has no lack. Notice also, as we know this hope of God in the saints, he has no shortage, but also God has given us everything and settled our future. God has given us everything and settled our future. This inheritance that he has set for us, look back to verse uh, 13 and 14. You also, speaking to the Gentiles, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, having surrendered to that and not been fighting him anymore, but to receive this truth, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Notice in verse 14, we didn't spend time on this last week, but it is also couched in this plurality of believers, the deposit of the Holy Spirit guaranteeing our inheritance does so until the redemption of those who are God's possession. The redemption, the full completion in the day of of Christ of the church. (coughs) All of this to the praise of his glory. God has given us everything and settled our future. When we look at this inheritance and we look at what he has given us, I'm reminded of verse 3. Flip back there, you don't want to miss it. Paul begins the letter with this idea, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. This is... The beauty that God has given us everything. Every spiritual blessing is already ours in Christ. Notice thirdly, God has no shortage. God has given us everything and settled our future. God's blessings are given in the context of the church. It is in the saints that we find this hope, this glorious inheritance out of the overflow of God's riches. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you can see. In order that you may know the hope. What hope? The hope to which He has called you. The hope of the riches. The hope of the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. 
Now there's more. Not only do we in the church know the person of God and know the hope of God, it is in the church, the body of Christ, that we know the power of God. God's power is manifest in the church. Notice this. In verse nine, uh, 18, we'll, we'll pick up 18 and continue into 19 because they flow together as a sentence here. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and, goes with it, his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now that incomparably great power is couched again in the church. It's for us who believe. In the church we know the power of God. Notice this, God's power for his people has a purpose. God's power for his people has a purpose. Back to 19. That we might know the incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the, in the present age, but also in the one to come. God's power for his people has a purpose. Notice that when he talks about this power, he says it's like the working. It's not, it's not potential energy, it's kinetic energy. It's the working of God's mighty strength. There is a purpose in it. We've been made for a mission. We have been created to carry out God's work. Not to sit and contemplate our navels, but to get up out of the chair and live, to act, to do things. That action is carrying out God's purpose of bringing all things together under Christ. God's power for His people is working. It has a purpose. Notice also, that God puts His omnipotence at the disposal of the church. God puts His omnipotence at the disposal of the church. Now, what is omnipotence? Omnipotence, omni, all, potence, power. God is all-powerful. He is the only, no matter what Marvel and DC Comics will tell you, He is the only omnipotent being in the universe. Follow the logic. If there are two omnipotent beings who have all power and cannot be thwarted, then one of them will have the power to thwart the other, right? And then only one remains. There can only be one omnipotent being. Just as there can only be one truly free will, one true sovereign. So God, being all-powerful, having all power within himself chooses to give it to the church. That power that he gives to the church in the saints is like the working of his mighty strength. All the strength of God available to his church for his purpose. There is nothing that we will ever lack to do what God has called us to do. 
This is why throughout the book of Acts, when we see over and over again, <coughs> excuse me, specific needs to be able to carry out God's purpose, God always meets those needs. And he does so for them in miraculous ways because he has not fully given his word at that time. Now we have his word. We don't need the same miraculous testimony. And yet we still will hear over and over, <coughs> pardon, miraculous stories from those on the mission field. I'm reminded, I think it was Brother Andrew, of uh, <coughs> smuggling Bibles into China. You can debate the morality of that on your own time. Don't email me about it. But as he was smuggling Bibles into China... It was supposed to go smoothly, it did not go smoothly, and the trunk was opened at the checkpoint to look at it, and they look in there, and there's all, just all kinds of Bibles. They never saw them. They close the trunk and it moves on. Stories like that are pretty regular in the mission field. <coughs> Keith Shamanic will share stories uh, from Costa Rica as, as those Supernatural, supernatural forces of darkness that are at work are overcome by clear potency of God in the church. Now, as we're looking for these things, we can get caught up in wanting to see God's omnipotence, the working of His mighty strength, in miraculous ways. But God most often works through providential ways. What's the difference? Miraculous is when God steps outside of His own rules because He is the maker of the rules and says, for this moment, we will suspend natural law to do something that is supernatural, above nature. <coughs> I must be uh, getting your cough here. This is not a sickness cough, it's a dry throat cough. Don't drink coffee before you have a, a preaching time. So as we, as we are looking at this and we get focused on miraculous things, we can miss out that God's omnipotence, His manifest mighty strength is displayed in providence, where God, through natural means, the laws that He has put in place, does mighty things by His hand to accomplish His purposes. Whether that is giving doctors specific wisdom and allowing things to work, or things that don't make sense to us, like love. Love when love is undeserved, the act of grace is not natural, but it is providential. There are a lot of things in life that we can see God's power in without getting caught up in needing to see God do miraculous things. God's power for His people has a purpose, and He puts His omnipotence at the disposal of the church. None of us bears the full power of God, but in the church... He makes His omnipotence available. Third, we know the power of God in the church because the power of God gives life to and through the church. The power of God gives life to and through the church. Paul writes that the power that he's talking about here is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead. This resurrection power that God demonstrated in Christ by raising him from the dead is the same power, Paul is saying, that is available to us in the church. God gives life to his people, which we'll see specifically, <coughs> excuse me, specifically next week. God takes dead people, spiritually dead people, and makes them alive. But more than that, it's not just that he gives life to his church, he gives life through his church. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We carry forth the gospel that God might be able, through the church, to bring dead people in the world to life so that they might be part of his church. This is how it works. The power of God gives life to and through the church. Resurrection power flows through the body together. Lastly, see this. Christ <clears throat> carries out his kingdom rule through his church. Christ carries out his kingdom rule through his church. The power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. He seated Christ in that position of authority at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way, as we established earlier, as Jesus fills everything. He does so through his church. Notice what he said here, in, that not only did the mighty power of God raise Jesus from the dead, but he seated him, placed him in the position of authority at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms. If you were with us the last few weeks, you may recognize that phrase. Hmm, where did I, where did I hear that in the heavenly realms? Back in verse 3. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ. What is true of Jesus Christ is true of those who are in Jesus Christ. The authority that Jesus has with the Father has been given to the, those of us who are in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, don't you know you're going to judge the world? The church will rule with Christ. In case you're not super clear that I'm talking about this rightly, turn to Revelation, all the way to the back. There are some other passages I'd love to show you, but over time, and to borrow from our friend Alistair Begg, if I were to do so, I would be frustrated and you would be annoyed. Revelation chapter 1. Look at verse 4 and following. We won't read all of these letters to the churches, but this is the context. As, as Jesus reveals what is going to happen to the Apostle John, 
He does so in the context of the church. Here's how he begins. John is writing this. This is John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, which is where Ephesus is, and they are mentioned here in these letters. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has, notice this, has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. He continues to, to go through this. And if we jump all the way to the back to Revelation 20, uh, chapter 20. If you read the rest of the book of Revelation, you'll see this in a few other places, chapter 5, chapter 7 in particular. Let's look at chapter 20, starting with verse 4. John writes, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to, to judge, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. He continues to go through what, what is taking place leading up to the new Jerusalem. And in chapter 21, he begins to describe it. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new, then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this. Remember the inheritance we were talking about earlier. And I will be his God and he will be my son but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Jump to the end of chapter 22. 
Actually, let's go to the beginning of chapter 22. Starting with verse 1, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever and ever. Christ carries out His kingdom rule through His church. It's easy if we just read through the Scriptures and don't pay attention and don't use sound principles of digging and discovering it's easy for us to miss crucial points. I, I've preached this passage before, and I don't think I caught how central the church is to what Paul is saying. I don't think I looked at it through the right lens, the lens of his great purpose of reconciling all things to himself in Christ. As we look at what Paul is saying in the context in which he is saying it, to whom he is saying it, it becomes increasingly clear that the church is central to everything that he is doing. In verses 22 and 23 of Ephesians 1, in Eugene Peterson's paraphrase or dynamic translation called The Message, he ends by saying, it's not that the church is peripheral to the world. It's that the world is peripheral to the church. The church is central. It's the body of Christ. It's the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. It is only in the context of the church that we can fully know and experience God. As we wrap this up, we need to understand some things. I hope it's encouraging to you. I hope it's convicting to you. God reveals himself in the context of the church, the body of Christ. If the church is God's priority and plan for carrying out his purpose, then spiritually healthy Christians we'll see life through that lens. If we don't, then we need to take a pretty serious examination of our spiritual health. When we prioritize other things over body life, you can fill in your own blanks of what those things are. Career, relationships, sports, so, you know, fill in the blanks. When we prioritize other things over body life, we're actually sinning against God. We're actually neglecting His purpose. We're failing in our mission. And we're harming those around us. It's in the church, in the body life, that the world around us gets to see who God is. 
You want to know the thing that causes most people to follow Christ? The thing that will actually grab someone with the gospel, if you really want to know what that is, look in the mirror. It's what they see in us. You want to know what the thing is that keeps most people from the gospel? Look in the same mirror. It's what they see in us. We must view church the same way Jesus does. We need to prioritize body life the way Jesus does. If we don't, we are harming those around us, and most especially, parents, most especially your children, because they are learning patterns that will stick with them for life. And what you teach them in their young years is most important, will stick with them as they grow. There are lots of good values we can teach our kids, and they can still end up in hell. We can teach them lots of great values and teach them reading and education and work habits and cleanliness and all of that kind of stuff is it's wonderful in its place. But if they die not prioritizing body life the way Jesus does, they won't know the fullness of who God is. They won't know the hope that He's called them to. They won't know the power that God displays in His church. Church is definitely more than getting together for worship and instruction. That's why it's so important for us to recognize in, in this pandemic, we don't, life doesn't end when we can't gather together on a Sunday morning. It's, it's not just that. But it's definitely not less than that. If our view of church is limited to a consumer mentality that we, we show up and we get something and we go home and then we're, we check that off our list until next week, then we don't know church. We're not looking at the body of Christ the way He does. We need to recalibrate our thinking. At the same time, we have to be able to get beyond our just gathering into doing life together in such a way that the people of God, your brothers and sisters in Christ, are of infinite importance to you. So the idea of not gathering causes you pain. The idea of not participating and serving and using whatever gifts God has given you to serve others in the church just seems foreign to you. My prayer for each one of us today is that we would no longer be able to think of ourselves as individuals, but as part of a body 1 Corinthians 12, 27 is our memory verse. I'm going to close with that. In chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is speaking of the unity of the body. One body, 
many members, just like your physical body, and you've got eyes and ears and liver and spleen and all these things. And they're all separate organs, but they all work together. And in the context of that, looking at church, Paul says, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. We need to understand that it's only in the context of the church that we can fully know and experience God. That's our priority. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the church. We thank you for your grace to us that we, that we might be able to call you Father. Not in some generic way as the world does, but as those who have been fully adopted, having all the rights and privileges and responsibilities of your begotten Son. Father, remind us that while we have received in Him every spiritually ble- a spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, that we have also received a calling and a responsibility that together we might display the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Remind us, Lord, that with all of the things we have in this life, all these temporal things will pass so that ultimately all we have is Christ. Make us one in Him. We pray this in his name. Amen.